Damien, published in 1919, is the first of Hermann Hesse's major novels, and introduces the questions and problems he would continually return to throughout his literary career. Originally published under a pseudonym, the name of the main character, Emile Sinclair, the novel takes the form of an autobiography of a young man growing into maturity by casting off the traditional values of his youth. Of vital importance to our reading of Damien is the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche. I spoke about his book, The Gay Science, in a prior episode, which you can refer back to, but I'll provide here a brief overview of what I consider the most important of his ideas as they pertain to this book specifically, that of the Overman slash Superman, or Ubermensch, in the original German. A note on translation here, both Overman and Superman sound a little bit stupid, and Ubermensch just sounds really fascist, so there's really no good way to talk about this concept without sounding a a little bit silly. I'd encourage you to join me in not focusing too much on this label or the, or the name, but instead on the concept behind it, which I'll be explaining. I'm going to use Overman from here on out because it's distinct enough to avoid confusion with the comic book character. Now, when Nietzsche appeals to this concept, he doesn't always use this precise word, but there is a tendency in his aphorisms for him to make distinctions, to separate humanity into two classes of people, and when he does this, he is usually implicitly talking about overman. One key aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy is self-actualization. What this entails is freeing oneself from forces of repression which commonly take the form of religious codes of morality. An overman is someone who can cast off these shackles and live in a totally free manner, manifesting their will directly and completely in the world. An overman is not a moral man and is not a good man, but is the most ultimately powerful man because he is in full control of himself. Nietzsche himself was no such person, and didn't seem to believe that such a person was even possible at the time of his writing. What he was intending to do was provide a foundation for the future to build upon, in order to eventually unlock the full potential of humanity. That is, humanity as individuals, not as a collective. Now, this concept of the overman or ubermensch can of course, be taken in a variety of ways. Many see it as a glorification of coercive force, such as using physical strength to enact one's will, or using mental fortitude to bend the world to fit your reality. Max Damien, a principal character in this novel, often showcases this sort of persuasive and physical strength, and sort of embodies this type of overman. Generals, warriors, and even fascist dictators fall under this sort of definition, which quite reasonably leads many people to be very dubious of any invocation of Nietzschean philosophy. This is not an incorrect reading at all, but I also don't think it's the only way to interpret the idea. It is clear in Nietzsche's work that there is a little bit more to the overman than physical violence and coercion. Often, he will connect this concept to artists, 
primarily poets, who manifest their individual personality not in feats of physical strength, but in the creation of meaningful works. The true poet goes against the grain. They don't follow the rules of those that came before, either poetic rules or societal rules. Devoting oneself to poetry or art of any kind is rarely a popular or recommended way to spend one's life, and living an artistic life free of compromise is fraught with difficulty. Remaining true to oneself as an artist requires the fortitude of an overman. It requires self-knowledge and self-discipline, both of which are signs of a strong will. In Hermann Hesse's later novel, Steppenwolf, these sort of artists are described as, quote, eternals, with Mozart and Goethe being put forth as shining examples, people who, throughout their artistic career, strove not for fame or posterity, but for something greater even than that, something beyond time and space altogether. Emile Sinclair is definitely more akin to this type than to the uh, someone at the gym lifting weights or an aspiring politician. He is somewhat effeminate and bourgeois, and his powers lay in his intellect. He struggles to understand himself so that he can live at all. He finds it impossible to live the kind of life that everyone expects him to. And in a way, this can be seen as a sort of weakness of his. The tribulations he faces on the way to achieving self-knowledge and self-actualization are primarily internal, and primarily about understanding both himself and the world, rather than changing it. This is how Hermann Hesse seems to read Nietzsche's philosophy, and how many others do too, as a means toward forging a new way of living, a way that allows for true human thriving. This way will be different for each person. Emil, like all of us, has to discover or create the path he's following while he's already on it. This is what it means to seek meaning for your own life instead of accepting someone else's meaning. All of Hermann Hesse's novels articulate this kind of spiritual journey, a search by the main character for the meaning of their life. Each must face struggles, must fight false conceptions, and eventually emerge as a true, complete person, no longer a shadow and no longer repressed or oppressed. Emile Sinclair in Damien is quite young, and we watch him embark on the first stage of this journey. These initial steps can be the most trying, but at the same time, these early preconceptions of youth can be the easiest to break, since they come not from within ourselves, but from outside. Emile has to overcome his parents, his bourgeois upbringing, and the traditional religious values that have been imparted to him. He has to do this because he feels that pull toward eternity, toward being a complete individual. Importantly absent from this novel is any sense of social responsibility. Emile lives in a deep solipsism, concerned only with his own individual existence. The other characters have an unreal quality about them. Max Damien, for example, is only really real when he is involving himself in Emile's life. Outside of that, he almost disappears. Characters like Franz Kromer and Emile's parents are in conflict, but they don't directly interact. 
Instead, the conflict is that they are each pulling Emil in different directions. Emil's is a quintessentially youthful way of looking at the world, where everything centers around his journey, and the things outside of his sight may as well not exist. We must remember that the overman ideal is intrinsically tied to nobility and aristocracy. The signifiers of the overman often hearken to the European leisured class. In the gay science, Nietzsche praises, quote, those men of leisure who spend their lives hunting, traveling, or in love affairs and adventures. In other words, those who are free to, due to their inherited wealth, to live whatever life they please. Emile Sinclair is not quite growing up in such extreme aristocratic leisure, but he is higher class, as we see in the fact that he goes to a different school than the working class children in his town. And the very idea that there are two classes of people, or there are people who are over other people, is obviously an aristocratic one. In Hess's later novels, such as The Glass Bead Game, we get a much deeper look into how this sort of renunciation of social responsibility on the part of the elite affects the greater world. The question actually arises as to whether such inner-looking activities are beneficial in a more general sense or merely egoistic. For now, though, we're stuck with Emile Sinclair, trying to find his own way in the world. The emphasis here is on it being his own, and the role of the world is an antagonistic force. This, I think, is what makes the novel resonate so deeply with young, rebellious people, including myself. When things don't go your way, or you don't feel like you're able to live the life that you want, then it only feels right to lash out against the world. Going your own way in life, and not following any path laid out for you, is difficult. Even finding out what your own way is can be difficult, and it involves a constant double-checking. Is this what I want, or is this what other people want for me? Chapter 1. Two Worlds. The book's first sentence tells us, in an abstract sense at least, what Emile Sinclair really wants. Quote, all I wanted was to live the life that was spontaneously welling up within me. Why was that so very difficult? Born around the turn of the 20th century to a bourgeois German family, Emile Sinclair suffers more acutely than most the transition from childhood to adolescence, when one starts to catch glimpses of a world one is still unable to understand. Inside young Emile is an older, stronger, darker, and more mature Emile, struggling desperately to emerge. He needs a little coaxing. To fully embody this new image of himself, Emile must face those aspects of the world and of ourselves that many of us try to ignore. In the first chapter, Two Worlds, Emile labels these aspects the Dark World. It is at around 10 years old that Emile begins to recognize this dark world as a distinct entity, an opposite pole to the innocent propriety of his childhood home. It is not as simple as separate places, physically, as the dark world interpenetrates the Sinclair household, 
the domestic workers occupy this dark world, sharing stories of, quote, slaughterhouse and jail, drunks and bickering women, cows giving birth, horses collapsing, burglaries, killings, suicides. When the maids are engaged in prayer with Emil's parents, they are part of the bright world, but as soon as they escape to the kitchen or pantry, they become part of the dark. We can see from a few of these examples that this bright world, dark world distinction isn't tied only to morality, but to class. A cow giving birth or a horse collapsing is not immoral. It's completely amoral. It's just an animal doing something natural. But people of Emile's social class do not deal with nature in the form of animal life in this way. They don't dirty their hands with newborn calves or dead horses. If a horse dies, it preferably dies outside of their sight and doesn't get in their way. They might have to order someone to buy them a new horse, but that's about as involved as they're going to get. So the dark world is not dark because it's inherently evil, but it's dark because it's meant to be unseen. Emil and those like him aren't supposed to look at it. They may catch glimpses of the dark world, but they're meant to act as if they don't. And this is the source of Emile's frustration. He feels constrained by the bright world, like he's missing some key part of human existence. Emile feels himself to be the only one of his family who recognizes this dark world, and who feels its pull. As far as he is concerned, his parents and his sisters have no connection to or conception of it at all. They fully embody the bright world. They know nothing of slaughterhouses or suicides. If we stand back to consider this outside of Emile's perspective, it is obviously untrue. His parents, no matter what their status or profession, are inevitably more tangled up in this darker world than Emile could ever imagine. But Emile does not consider this. In his eyes, the dark world exists only for him, only to tempt him exclusively. This temptation already places in Emile a sense of guilt. He is guilty just for having the thought that the dark world is maybe more interesting or more engaging than the bright. He reads accounts of prodigal sons, and realizes that their fall from grace is often much more exciting than their inevitable return to the fold. This is our first hint in the novel of the concept of sin, which will play a major role in these early parts. Sin, within the model of Christianity in which Emile is raised, often has nothing to do with actions necessarily. Sin is temptation. It is the pull toward Satan. And what's important is not doing good acts, but resisting an inner inclination toward bad acts. Being internal, this struggle is only known to you and God. Thus, you can be guilty without harming anyone around you, or without them even noticing that you're guilty of anything. This is where Emile finds himself. He considers himself innately more guilty than his parents and sisters. When he does anything bad, such as acting out when playing with his sisters, it is introducing the very concept of badness into their bright world. In this way, he is already primed for a fall. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And 
it soon begins to fulfill itself. Emil finds himself one day hanging out with a bully named Franz Krober, who comes from the darker, poorer, lower-class part of society. Emil is frightened of Franz. Franz, by virtue of being forged in the darker parts of the world, is stronger and fiercer than him. Franz is able to order Emil and a few of his schoolmates around, making them collect odds and ends by the river that we can assume Franz will later sell. During a break, the kids tell stories about pranks and other mischievous activities they've gotten up to. Emil feels pressured to tell a story of his own, so he reaches into his imagination and begins to spin a yarn about stealing fruit from a nearby orchard. At this moment, Emil commits his original sin. Up to this point, his sins have been entirely internal, but this sin exists in the world by virtue of him speaking it aloud. It doesn't actually matter that the sin itself is untrue. Emil, through his enthusiastic storytelling, convinces himself that it is real. As the reader, it is clear that his audience likely doesn't believe his story, but Emil thinks they do, and that's all that matters. This sin has now stained his external reputation, and that makes him a legitimate sinner. There is an obvious parallel here between Emile's original sin and that of Adam and Eve picking the apple in the Garden of Eden. Another parallel, which itself is using Genesis as an archetype, is St. Augustine's original sin of stealing pears. Like Emile, Augustine is far more scandalized by this petty crime than anyone without an overbearing religious conscience might be. Augustine pleads to God, quote, Now behold, let my heart tell thee what it sought there, that I should be gratuitously evil, having no temptation to ill but the ill itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved mine own fault. Not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself. Emile similarly relishes in his imaginary theft and the feeling of guilt that it provides. Whereas before he had felt a vague, abstract sense of guilt with no fixed position, now he has a real, albeit imaginary, tangible guilt in which to revel in. He finally has a reason for his feelings. This allusion to St. Augustine sets up an archetype for Emile's journey that we already know will not be fulfilled. We know this because earlier, when Emile comments on the stories of prodigal sons, of which Augustine's Confessions is a foundational example, he rejects the premise that a return to grace is a satisfying resolution. Emile's journey begins with familiar notes of Christianity and sin, but it is going to provide a new spin on it. Emile will not fall and then return to where he was, but instead he will find somewhere new, some new way of being that is different from the ideal world of his parents. Emile is a modern man, a follower of Nietzsche. He sees that the world is changing and that the old beliefs can't keep up. Franz Kromer uses Emile's lie about the apple orchard to blackmail him, 
threatening to rat him out if Emile doesn't give him money or perform tasks for him. Cromer obviously sees through Emile's lie, and he uses this to concoct his own lie, telling Emile that he actually knows the man whose orchard Emile stole from, and that this man is offering a reward for information regarding the theft. Both Emile and Cromer know that this theft is imaginary, but it still has the power to affect their relationship and their power dynamic. Cromer, by sheer force of will, is able to convince Emile that this threat is real, and therefore turn an imaginary idea into an instrument for his own ends. We will later hear Max Damien discuss this very power, which he uses on his school teachers and possibly on Cromer himself. Damien, however, doesn't use this power for mere pecuniary or otherwise trivial ends, but only when he feels an intense spiritual inclination toward a certain goal. This places Damien above the average schoolyard bully. It makes it clear that his Nietzschean overman abilities are not about power for its own sake, but about the power to self-actualize. To return to Emil, as soon as he acquiesces to Cromer's blackmail and promises him money in return for not being turned in, he's done for. My life was wrecked, he says. He contemplates running away or committing suicide, but settles for sitting down on the stairs and sobbing. This may all seem like an overreaction, but there are a few things at play here. Firstly, Emile is only 10 years old, and little problems feel a lot more significant when you're 10 years old. Secondly, Emile has always felt himself destined to be pulled down into the dark world, and now it has finally happened. He is fatalistic about it because he feels it's his fate. He is physically incapable of doing the very simple actions that might free him from Cromer's pull, such as telling his parents about the whole thing, knowing that they will sincerely believe him when he says the apple theft never really happened. This is because even if he were to free himself this time, he sees it to be inevitable that in the future he will once again be pulled into the dark world. He's tainted now. He's already a sinner, and there's no turning back. He says to himself, quote, Whether my crime was a theft or a lie didn't matter. My sin wasn't any particular action. My sin was having given my hand to the devil. It doesn't matter what he did, and therefore it doesn't matter if his punishment fits the crime. The true crime is internal, in his giving in to temptation and therefore his true punishment will not be bestowed by authority figures, but will be inflicted by himself on himself in the form of anguish and torment. Cromer takes on a massive presence in Emile's mind, dominating his every waking moment. He is always on the alert for Cromer's distinctive whistle, which lets him know that Cromer wants him to do something or give him something. This whistle is ubiquitous, it can appear at any time and in any place, and interrupt whatever Emile is doing. Cromer is much more important as a mental phenomenon than as a physical one. 
His presence in the world pales in comparison to his presence in Emile's imagination. His real power is quite limited. He's just a schoolyard bully, after all. Even if he were to turn Emile in, which wouldn't even make sense because Emile didn't actually do anything, the worst that could happen is that Emile gets scolded a little. The, the farmer isn't going to kill him for pretending to have stolen a few apples. Thus, Cromer is a mere representation of something greater, that is, the devil, and Emile describes him as such. He has Emile under his sway, and is able to compel Emile to do his bidding, because of Emile's innate sinfulness. Or rather, Emile's innate sinfulness lies in the fact that he can be compelled by the devil. Emile mentions that this entire Cromer saga might only have lasted a few weeks in all, and yet it left such a mark on him that he chooses it as the introduction to his life story. There are a few reasons for this. One is what I've mentioned thus far, that this was his first proper sin. Second is because the Cromer saga ends with the appearance of Max Damien, and the first showcasing of his powers, which we will get to in the next chapter. But third is an incident that Emile says is the, quote, important and lasting element of the whole experience, and this is when Emile overcomes his father. Like most incidents in Emile's life, this is a one-sided affair. Emile's father has no idea that he is being overcome, or that anything of note is happening at all. In his eyes, he's simply scolding Emile for dirtying his shoes outside. But Emile knows the truth, which is that he has done something much worse than dirtying his shoes. He's dirtied his soul. He has ruined himself to such an extent that it feels almost comical that his father wouldn't notice. From this, he gains a sense of pride. He knows something that his father doesn't, and thus he is superior to him in some way. We can tell that Emile has always respected his father, like many children do, and considered him essentially omniscient and omnipotent. Or omnipotent. It is only now that he realizes that he will not be in his father's sway forever, and that he has the power to become his own individual. In another sense, we can see this as a confrontation with the father in a more abstract sense, i.e. overcoming God, and the material ramifications of following God's commandments. The implications of God the Father go further than just denoting that Jesus is his son, and casts a wide shadow over father-son relationships in general. In the traditional bourgeois family structure in which Emile is born, the father is the arbiter of judgment and punishment. In sinning and not receiving immediate punishment from on high, Emile has proven that the connection between sin and punishment is not as direct as he may have previously thought, at least in a material sense. No one can punish you for things they don't know about, and it is now proven to be possible for his father to not know about things. This whole initial chapter is about tearing down these sorts of structures and barriers that prevent Emile from expressing his true self, which must, in order to be true, incorporate aspects of both the dark world and the bright world. 
The initial consequences of these breakdowns are anguish and torment, and Emil remembers this era as a terrifying and terrible time in his life. But at the same time, it opens up the possibility of true self-knowledge and self-actualization, which will become the driving force behind the rest of the narrative. By the end of this first chapter, Emil is entirely estranged from his family. They can't understand him or what he's going through, and he can't possibly feel comfortable in their presence, considering the state of his soul. Cast off from the familiar path, and no longer able to look to his family for comfort or guidance, Emil is in need of a new compass by which to orient himself. And this comes in the form of Max Damien. Chapter 2. Cain. Max Damien is a mysterious transfer student who had joined Emil's grammar school shortly prior to his run-in with Franz Cromer. He is several years older than Emil, and has an air of maturity and cool sophistication that makes him stick out even from the students in his own grade. He stands apart from them, not participating in their scuffles or their games, and seems to consider the teachers as his peers rather than the students. Due to his cool demeanor and aloofness, rumors begin to spread throughout the school. His mother is a widow, and neither of them attend the church, causing speculation as to whether they might be Jewish or Muslim or something else altogether. These rumors are not actually too far from the truth, as these next two chapters, titled Cain and The Thief on the Cross, center around Damien's unorthodox and even blasphemous interpretations of biblical stories. Emil is already emotionally well on his way toward abandoning his childhood religion, but what Damien provides here is an intellectual basis with which to justify these sentiments. Emil first meets Max Damien when their classes have to share a classroom for a session. The older students are working on an essay, while the younger are lectured on the story of Cain and Abel. Emil finds himself unable to resist stealing glances at Damien, even though he admits a certain aversion to him. We can chalk this up to a sort of jealousy, as Damien seems to be able to do what Emil cannot, that is, live the life that is spontaneously welling up inside of him. Emil has still not overcome the repressive judgments of his society. When he sees Damien acting out of line, he still has this desire to stop or censure him. After class, Damien catches up with Emil and asks to walk with him a ways. When Emil points out his house, Damien says that he already knows about it, and has in fact been curious about a worn-out crest on the wall above Emil's front door. The contents of this crest foreshadow a motif that will show up later in the novel, but of initial interest here are two things. First, that Damien immediately reveals that he has more or deeper knowledge of Emil and his upbringing than Emil himself does. And secondly, it seems to hint at a sort of fate or destiny for Emil, being born beneath a symbol that will later represent his spiritual journey. Damien then, out of the blue, asks what Emil thinks of the story of Cain and Abel that they had been learning about in class. Emil's initial response points to his ambivalence. He actually dislikes much of these stories he learns in school, but doesn't dare say it. Instead, he gives a non-committal answer, saying it's fine. 
Damien, for the first of many times, sees right through him, and launches into a strange exegesis of the tale. In the original version, Cain kills his brother Abel because God prefers Abel's offerings more. To quote the New International Version of the Bible, quote, Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Cain then travels to a land of Nod, where he ends up taking a wife and becoming a patriarch in himself. The actual story in the Bible is quite short and enigmatic, open to a wide variety of interpretations. In Damien's version, Cain is not marked by God because he killed his brother. The mark instead came first, and perhaps isn't a physical mark at all, but some aspect of his personality that distinguishes him from others. Damien posits that this might have been heightened intelligence or bravery. This strong, distinguished man, Cain, killed another man for whatever reason, maybe his brother, maybe not, as Damien says, quote, when you come down to it, all men are brothers, and no one was brave enough to take vengeance. And so they invented this idea that God had decided he can't be killed in order to exculpate their cowardice. When Emile looks at the Bible when he gets home, he finds Damien's theory to be nonsensical. The text does not support such a reading at all. Damien has gone beyond biblical criticism here. He essentially ignores the text completely, arguing that the story we have received in the Bible has been corrupted over time. This argument of corruption or of wrongly interpreted texts is the same that Jesus makes when he disregards the Pharisees, and the same that Muhammad makes when he claims the Quran to be the true word of God, as opposed to the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. Damien is not trying to reinterpret Christianity here. He is instead founding a new religion. In this new religion, Cain's mark takes on an entirely different meaning than it does in Genesis. Cain is not the lowest of the low, but instead the highest of the high. The mark is a mark of distinction, and it is one that Damien clearly has. Emile specifically notes, quote, This Damien, isn't he himself a sort of Cain? Damien stands taller than his peers. He frightens them with his intelligence and the sharp look in his eyes. They don't like him, and they spread nasty rumors about him, but he doesn't care because he knows himself to be above all that. Damien's take on Cain is essentially a self-justification. In the same way that he argues that the priestly interpretation of the story serves the ends of priests, his version serves his own ends. We know that Damien is a clever guy, so it's likely that this is an intentional and cynical move. Like Bazarov and Turgenev's fathers and sons, Damien realizes that if all these myths are mere inventions in order to promote ideologies, what's to stop him from inventing his own myths? There is no fundamental truth to them, only the emotional meaning and what they make us do. The story of Cain itself is not important. What's important is convincing Emile that Damien's way of life is the best. We will get into the possible reasons he wants this to happen later. Emile connects this story of Cain to his earlier experience with his father, where he felt superior in his distinction as a sinner over his father's innocent piety. 
Despite the fact that it's nonsense in a biblical sense, Damien Stoy has, in his eyes, an emotional truth, and he takes it on as a sort of framework for the type of critical thinking that he's going to engage in for the rest of his life. Damien's Cain is a sort of overman. He stands superior to those around him because of his power to transcend their bourgeois morality. Soon after this conversation, Emile's difficulties with Cromer come to a head. Cromer asks Emile to bring his sister along so that he can, quote, get to know her. Emile does not know what getting to know each other means, but he does understand sex to be, quote, some kind of secret, disgusting, and forbidden thing that older boys and girls are able to do to each other. Sex is clearly part of the dark world, and to bring his bright world sister into contact with it would be more monstrous than anything Emile has done thus far. At this point, Emile has reached an impasse. Petty crimes, real or imaginary, are one thing, but corrupting his own family is another. It is no surprise, then, that Max Damien shows up to solve the problem. It is important to note here that Max Damien, although cool and aloof, is always the one approaching Emile, going out of his way to involve himself in Emile's life. He finds Emile at this time jumpy and anxious, and immediately surmises, using what he calls mind reading, that Emile shares some sort of secret with Franz Kromer and is in his debt. Quote, you ought to get rid of that fellow, he says. If it can't be done any other way, kill him. I'd be impressed and pleased if you did. I'd even help you. This is the Cain slash Overman and Damien coming out. He has transcended regular morality and sees the world simply. If you don't like someone and you don't want them to exist in the world, you should kill them. It's as easy as that. It makes sense Logically, the only thing going against such an idea is the moral framework we have been raised to live in. In the end, Damien doesn't kill Cromer, but he does manage to stop him from harassing and blackmailing Emile. In terms of how he went about this, all we find out from Damien is that he, quote, merely spoke to him and made it clear that it's to his own advantage to leave Emile in peace. Now, if we imagine this conversation, the only real way this could have worked is via threat, as Cromer's relationship to Emile up to this point has been entirely to Cromer's advantage. Damien has been rumored by the schoolchildren to have unnatural powers, and to have paralyzed another student's arm simply by squeezing his neck, so perhaps he made use of this reputation. Thus, Emile's problem has been solved, but importantly, Emile does not solve it. He doesn't face the dark world head-on. He doesn't manifest his own strength. Instead, he sits passively, allowing others to fight over him. Free from his personal Satan, he finally confesses to his parents what he's done, and the petty sins he was forced to do in order to satisfy Cromer. Safe in their arms, and in the calming realm of the bright world, he reverts to a second childhood, relishing in the culmination of his prodigal son journey. But deep in his heart, 
Emil knows that this is not over. He's seen the dark world, he's even lived in it, and he understands that Damien's action didn't just free him from Cromer. It has, at the same time, transferred possession of Emil's soul from Cromer to Damien. Cromer is the Satan of the Dark World. He is sin in its most pure, simple, and stupid form. He uses his power to achieve petty goals with no higher meaning. Damien, on the other hand, is the lord of a realm that transcends Emil's initial conception of two worlds, the bright and the dark. Damien's realm straddles both, in order to reach at something loftier. Emil recognizes that the path Damien has laid out for him will be much more difficult and much more demanding, and thus he fears putting himself in Damien's hands. At the same time, there is a recognition here that Damien's control is somehow benevolent. Emil recounts nightmares in which Cromer beats him and pins him to the ground or forces him to commit terrible acts like murdering his own father. In these dreams, Emil always struggles against his tormentor. But when Emil has these same dreams of being, quote, beaten and terrorized, but this time not by Cromer, but by Damien, he does not struggle, but instead accepts it, with, quote, an emotion made up just as much of pleasure as of fear. This is a recognition on Emile's part that whatever suffering Damien's path will put him through, it will be good for him in the end, that Damien is trying to help him. This mixture of pleasure and fear characterizes their entire relationship. When, when Emil first sees Damien, he says that he doesn't like him, that he found him, quote, too provokingly self-confident. And yet he is clearly attracted to him and his self-confidence, to the point where he can't take his eyes off of him. We will explore some of the homoerotic elements present here in a later chapter. Due to Emile's fear of this domination, he tries to forget about Damien completely after the Cromer saga, never actually thanking him for his help. At the end of the chapter, Emile asks his father about Damien's interpretation of the story of Cain and Abel. His father tells him that such an interpretation inevitably leads to the Gnostic heresy that God has made a mistake and that the God of the Bible wasn't the true God, but some other thing. His father dismisses this as a satanic heresy, an attempt by the devil to destroy Christianity. But we have to ask ourselves whether this argument is that much different than Damien's idea that the church has concealed the true meaning of the story for all this time. Now that Emile has this other perspective, the traditional orthodox interpretation feels just as arbitrary as anything else. Emile has overcome the point in his life where this kind of authoritative voice is comforting, and instead has learned that he must doubt everything. Chapter 3, The Thief on the Cross. We will conclude this first 
part of our Damien episode by taking a look at Chapter 3, The Thief on the Cross, which serves to accentuate many of the themes introduced in the previous chapter. We learn a bit more about Damien and some of his powers, and he offers us another heretical biblical exegesis. After saving a meal from Cromer, Damien disappears from Emil's life for a number of years. Without Damien around, Emil makes little progress in his development, still caught in much the same place as we left him at the end of chapter 2. In fact, he has very little to relate about this Damienless period of his life at all, aside from mentioning the imposition of sexual thoughts into his mental life which he refuses to confront, still thinking of sex as that, quote, secret, forbidden, and disgusting thing. He makes no attempt to reconcile his feelings, instead living a sort of double life, where he continues to act like a child while growing into an adult. These sexual feelings are only briefly introduced in this chapter. They will become much more important in the following. Aside from this phenomenon, Emil mentions a few instances in which he sees Damien. One, another instance of foreshadowing, where he is sketching the crest on the front of Emil's house, and another where he is casually observing a dead horse on the road. This second calls back to the description of the Dark World from the first chapter, where Emil mentions horses collapsing as a distinctly Dark World phenomenon. What we are meant to gleam from this brief scene is a reinforcement of Damien's comfort in both of Emile's two worlds. When Damien reappears in Emile's life, it is during confirmation class. Confirmation is a rite of passage in many branches of Christianity, whereby young people, usually between the ages of 12 or 14, are reaffirmed in their faith as they transition into adulthood. This is often preceded by a series of lectures on a variety of topics meant to cement their foundational knowledge of Christian belief. Damien, being a few years older than Emile, should have been confirmed earlier, but in his general unorthodoxy is instead doing it a few years late, thus placing him and Emile in the same class. Once again, it almost seems that Damien's life revolves around Emile. Him and his mother both live a non-traditional life, and we see that Damien is not a Christian, which will be reinforced again during this chapter. He is not attending confirmation class in order to learn or to reaffirm his faith, but is instead there to deal the finishing blows to Emile's faith and convert him, finally, to his new religion. This is clear from the way that Damien uses his powers of persuasion to finagle his way into sitting next to Emile during class. Their seats are meant to be arranged alphabetically by last name, but Damien simply sits down where he chooses, and by sheer force of will makes the teacher ignorant of the fact that he's in the wrong place. He convinces Emile that this is some mystical power, that an individual with a strong enough will can bend the universe to his whim, at least to a certain extent, if he desires something strongly enough. This idea reminds me of Renaissance ideas of attraction or magnetism, where charisma is considered a spiritual quality rather than a psychological one. What we're dealing with here is a difference of conception rather than a material difference. 
Damien's work here has much in common with someone walking around with a clipboard like they own the place and convincing people to let them into spaces where they shouldn't be. Whether this is magic or something more mundane is often a matter of perspective. Damien is convinced that he got away with all of this due to the power of his will, rather than the teacher simply not caring that much. And Emile is convinced of this too, which in the end is what's most important here. The power of the individual will in the face of spiritual authority also plays a key role in Damien's interpretation of the story of the thief on the cross. The episode in question makes up only a few lines in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, when Jesus is being crucified on the hill of Golgotha. He is flanked on either side by a pair of thieves who are being crucified at the same time. One decides to taunt Jesus, asking him if he's supposedly the Messiah, why he can't save them from their punishment. The other thief seems to be a Christian convert, since he claims that Jesus has done nothing wrong and asks him to remember him when he enters paradise. Similar to the Mark of Cain, this is a passage that is easy to pass over, being fairly short and initially seeming pretty cut and dry. The first thief is being punished via crucifixion with no hope of possible redemption or compensation because he doesn't believe in the power of Jesus Christ. The second thief, on the other hand, despite the worldly punishment he is receiving, understands that by accepting Jesus as his Lord, he will be provided an eternity in heaven, which more than makes up for a few hours or days on a cross. The episode showcases the power of conversion and of accepting Jesus. We have two people suffering the same worldly fate, presumably for the same or similar acts, and yet with two wildly varying religious ideas that will vastly alter what happens to them after death. Damien, of course, can't leave things at that. Instead, he makes a hero of the first thief the taunting thief, for sticking to his convictions. The second thief, he believes, is an example of someone who converts on their deathbed, at the point when they have no further prospect of benefiting from sin. He sees this as taking the easy way out, and also as a form of treachery toward their past life. Such a person is fundamentally untrustworthy, because they are willing to completely change the principles they have lived by at the drop of a hat, when it seems like it will benefit them. The first thief, on the other hand, sticks to his jeering and sinful ways up to the last moment, regardless of the consequences. The story, in its original Christian context, only has meaning if Jesus' gospel is taken as the absolute truth. The second thief is only a positive role model if Jesus actually is the Son of God, and if belief in his lordship is a surefire way to achieve paradise in the afterlife. If none of this is the case, if Jesus is just some guy, and the afterlife either doesn't exist or exists in a different form, then the attitudes of these two thieves is irrelevant when faced with the fact that they both die being crucified. 
What Damien has to do here then is construct a new cosmology where these attitudes are in fact meaningful but in a way that is directly opposed to the gospel as truth cosmology presented by Jesus and his disciples. Damien's cosmology is, on the other hand, subjective, and one's only loyalty is toward one's individual nature, rather than some all-encompassing set of beliefs. The second thief is true to God, but the first thief is true to himself, because he has, at least in the implied backstory that Damien provides for him, constructed his own principles and then stuck to them. This conversation ends with an important exchange where Damien's ideas begin to intersect with Emile's theory of the two worlds. Damien argues that in Christian thought, everything good and holy is connected to God, while everything else in the world is either ignored or ascribed to the devil. This leads people to an incomplete understanding of the world and of themselves, because they can't appreciate the interplay between what is the devil's and what is God's, or, in other words, between the dark world and the bright world. And so, he says, quote, We must also have a service for the devil, or else create some new god, who would also include the devil within himself. As we will see later, such a god exists and learning to worship him will be a part of Emile's journey. In practical terms, what this means is learning to face both the bright world and the dark world, and accepting that each of these worlds exists within oneself. Emile's pull toward the dark isn't sin or temptation, but instead a longing for completeness, which will, in the end, give him the power to live the life that is spontaneously welling up within him. This power is exemplified in the character of Damien, who has, by the end of this chapter, transformed from a cool older friend to a nigh supernatural figure. His offstage handling of Cromer, combined with the rumors floating around him, already hinted at powers beyond normal human capacities. And in this chapter, we are introduced to his magical charismatic powers, as well as a form of meditation that harkens to legends of Eastern sages. This meditation is discovered by Emile one day in class, when he looks over at Damien and finds him sitting completely still, not even breathing, looking pale and lifeless. Damien had mentioned previously that, quote, a person must be able to crawl away into himself completely, like a turtle. And it looks like he is able to do just that. Emile is frightened by this for a reason beyond its obvious uncanniness. In Damien's stone-cold mask, he thinks he sees the real Damien. That the Damien that talks and hangs out with him is just Damien playing a role for his sake, and that the true Damien is this person, quote, stony, age-old, animal-like, stone-like, beautiful and cold, dead, and secretly filled with unimaginable life. What terrifies Emile is the knowledge that this true Damien is impenetrable. He contains within himself all that he needs, and because of that, he can absent himself from the world at will. This ability means that every interaction he has with the world, and 
thus with Emil, takes place on his terms, and that he holds all the power. The world cannot affect him, because the true him lies behind this impenetrable stone mask. By revealing this power, Damien is signaling his incoming disappearance from Emil's life. He will, for the next few years, be totally inaccessible, and Emil will need to learn to cope without him and find the power within himself. In Damien's worldview, relying on others is a weakness. Each man is an island and must learn to live totally independently. Emile is not there yet. He's nowhere near. When he attempts to emulate Damien by practicing meditation, he struggles to keep it up. He hasn't developed that inner world to escape into. At the end of the chapter, Emile is preparing to leave his childhood home to attend school in another town. We have now reached the end of Emile's adolescence. He learned that he can't rely on his parents, and thus turned to Damien. Now he has learned that he can't rely on Damien, either. Quote, Damien had gone out of town. I was alone. But we are never ready for a new phase in our life, no matter how much we prepare. In order to progress, we must face new challenges, and inevitably, we must fail. Emile, left alone without Damien, will flounder. He will find himself unable, at first, to live the life spontaneously welling up within him. He's not ready yet. He's not meant to be ready yet. Damien's readiness is an aberration. He is too old for his age, as if he was simply born knowing all that Emile will have to learn. In this way, he's not a real person, because he doesn't have a journey and he doesn't change. He's more like a demigod. Emile, however, is a real person, and his struggle is that of a real person. We can attempt to learn from what Damien says if we like, but it's difficult to internalize it. That's why this story isn't about Damien. It is only by following Emile's journey that we can see how this philosophy works within a real human life, and perhaps learn something about what it means to become yourself. In this episode, we've covered the first three chapters of Damien by Herman Hesse, which means that we are less than halfway through the book. I've chosen to cover this book in, in such detail, partially because the book is relatively short, and its brevity makes it quite tempting to cover everything in it, which is obviously impossible to do, but at this rate it seems like I'll be getting somewhat close. We've set up in this episode Emile Sinclair and his childhood, and we've set up the character of Damien and the sort of overman framework uh, that will that will sort of serve as the structure for Emile's journey and, and his outcome in the end of the book. So hopefully we'll be able to get through in the next part, the sort of second half of the book, where Emile is sort of left to fend for himself. He ends up meeting a new spiritual guide that 
he must overcome when he realizes that those answers are inadequate. And that will be the moment when Emil sort of comes into his own. And then we will have to deal with the novel's somewhat enigmatic conclusion um, with the onset of the First World War. Whether it will be possible to cover that in one part um, or not remains to be seen. Uh, This episode was even being a third or even being less than half of the book uh, is actually longer uh, than most episodes of the show. Even if the second part is the same length as this one, it will make uh, the Damien episode longer than my War and Peace episode. Uh, a book 12 times its length, which is somewhat hilarious, but that's just the way it goes. So I hope you're enjoying this sort of deep dive into Damien. Uh, I can't help but do things the way I do them. So we're, we're going to be here for another month. Thank you uh, for listening to the episode. Uh, make sure to tune in for the next one where we will be concluding this novel, I hope. Or at least we'll be getting a lot more uh, into it, and we'll we'll uh, explore a lot of different aspects of it. I don't know what book I'm going to be covering after this. Can't look that far in the future. If you like the show, if you're enjoying this, uh, make sure to rate or review it on on podcast platforms. Uh, you can or you can subscribe on YouTube and and leave a comment there. Uh, also, tell a friend. If you think anyone would be interested, if you know anyone who is uh, into this novel, wants to hear someone talk about it for uh, a long time, let them know. Uh, I'd I'd greatly appreciate that. You can visit my website at balkwell.online, where I publish uh, essays every two weeks. If you like this show, you'll, you'll like those essays. It's a similar sort of thing. Um, Also, I recently published a novel. It's called Only in Dreams. It's available on Amazon. Uh, The book is sort of a coming-of-age story, and it's actually somewhat similar, a similar vein to Damien. Uh, Different in many ways, but a similar type of story, so maybe you'll enjoy that. Uh, And that's all I got. Thank you. Goodbye.